1: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game.
0: This is the Power Producers Podcast, production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power?
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have from the great state of Texas, Mr. James Jenkins. What's up, James?
2: How's it going? Thanks for having me on, man.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. (laughs) Glad to have you.
2: Oh my gosh, the cord is killing me, man. (laughs) I wish you guys could see David right now. This is the goofiest he's ever looked. Uh, uh,
1: Yeah, my wife would probably argue that point, but cable management is not my strong suit. If you saw (laughs) what my phone area looked like, you would
2: understand.
1: It's terrible. Well, I mean, look, I take zero responsibility for that because... We have a managed services provider that handles all of our IT stuff. And, well, the ex-managed services provider is the one who left my desk looking like a rat's nest. It's absolutely horrendous. It looks like it could be a fire hazard, actually. Mm.
2: It is. Man, I love that my uh, my IT guy is an absolute fanatic about cable management. It, it, looks, it looks like something from the Ritz-Carlton up in here.
1: I've got to believe that you're your IT guy then.
2: No, I'm not. I hired that out. I don't, I don't have any time for that. Oh,
1: really? Yeah, you have a guy that does it.
2: No, I, I stick to my lane, you know, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, I imagine. Uh, it's really important for me to not get drawn off sides with, you know, stuff that isn't revenue generating.
1: Well, I agree. I mean, not only is it not revenue generating, but the other problem is it's actually stuff that sort of piques my interest. So I would devote attention to it. <laughs> and that it just compounds the fact that it's not revenue generating. So. I'm 100% with you. I mean, it was interesting. I was in um, Cass's, I'm in Cass's mastermind group and he put out a thing uh, probably about a year ago. I don't know, maybe not that long ago, but it was basically asking everybody, you know, what do you pay for your tech stack? You know, what is your tech spend? And so, you know, everybody, number one, loaded question because there's no pre-qualification as far as what the components of, said tech stack should look like. But basically, I, you know, I started, I answered and he was all over me. You know, he, he wanted to tell me I was paying too much and money was being wasted and everything else. I think it's interesting when, when you get into those sort of debates with people, because number one, when you ask a question and it's answered in a flat dollar amount, that may be a lot of money to one agent, It may not be a lot to another agency. I mean, if you have an agency that's doing a million dollars in revenue and an agency that's doing three and a half or $4 million in revenue, I've never managed the dollars in terms of how I create my budget, how I reconcile. Everything I do is based off of a percentage of revenue. And if you manage your percentages right, the dollars are the dollars. You can't run a three and a half million dollar agency with an identical tech stack to a half million. It's just, you can't do it because number one, you've got, you've got more seats that you have to buy. If there's nothing else, you know, that you need to address, I have to have more seats for my CRM. I have to have more seats for my agency management system. So naturally I'm going to spend more money, but I think a lot of the um, conversation was focused around it services my theory on that's really shallow, actually. I don't want to have to deal with it. I want to be able to pick up the phone and get it fixed immediately. And so, dude, today, perfect example. I had to hit them up to get into uh, to get back into Hawksoft. It was done in thirty seconds. That's all I ask. I don't. I don't want to be on the phone with them trying to troubleshoot for forty five minutes when I'm not even at the office. Used to drive me nuts. No longer have that problem. Yeah, no, I think I think the uh, response time is huge. I have zero complaints about the group we're using now. Right. Well, listen, James, your background is is interesting. Fortune uh, or would you was a Fortune 500 company you worked for? I forget. You were in general industry for a little while, then you moved into uh the captive arena and now you're an independent and I think that there's a lot of people that can benefit from hearing your story of how you sort of moved from captive to independent, but give them, give them just a quick overview on, on what everything looks like from your background and then we'll push forward.
2: Sure. Yeah. The, uh, the relevant stuff for the listeners here, you know, I was in corporate America. I had a variety, uh, I call it an eclectic professional background. It's a nice way of saying it. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I went into uh, college thinking I was going to be a surgeon Um, you know, orthopedic or neurology, one or the other. And I failed organic chemistry, so that dream crashed and burned. Um, That, I got my uh, bachelor's in 08, right at the height of all that total insanity going on with the economy. So I decided to stick around for grad school for two years. Uh, Got done with a communication master's in crisis management and uh, public speaking. Had no idea how useful those two would come into handy, let me tell you. But, you know, I'm two years post-grad school, and miserable and just slogging away in corporate America with no real direction and my wife god bless her you know I walk in the door from work one day she's like okay here's the deal I love you but I really don't like you you're not any fun to be around you're big old negative Nancy you need to go figure out what you're going to do with your life you need to be your own boss because you've had three idiots in a row that you worked for and man, it was bad. I mean, I walk in the door at my job. I care more than my boss. I'm a lot smarter than my boss and I'm working hard, much harder than my boss is working. And that was, that was my last corporate thing. That's my last job before insurance. Uh, I I did all the research and uh, ended up getting on board with uh, one of the big national captives uh, and was with them for about six and a half years. And, and we can dive into some of that uh, because there, there's definitely some value to the captive business model. Now, for someone like me that, you know, doesn't have any experience uh, starting an insurance agency from scratch with no industry experience, I think is just completely irresponsible. I know some people have done it that had, you know, come into the industry with no experience and just open a shop. Uh, I, I think that's a really bad idea for a lot of reasons.
1: I don't know how you pull that off, man. I mean, I, I think that the people who do come from the captive channel probably have a le- have a leg up when it comes to running an agency right out of the box versus somebody like me, for example, who was a producer at a at a successful agency, and then a partner in another firm before I launched Florida Risk Partners. Just because of the structure, or what? Uh, you know, I don't know, just because of some of the operational things that you face, the HR challenges and all of that, the reason that I was able to pull it off or have pulled it off to some degree so far is just because I spent 10 years in operations and with total PL responsibility. So yeah. it wasn't a natural. it wasn't like a massive migration for me to do that. But I do think that if I were just a producer and I didn't have any, you know, hiring and firing experience or background in... Understanding PL and you know uh, balance sheets and all of that stuff, I probably wouldn't you know wouldn't have made it honestly.
2: Well, you know when I look at the captive model, I think the big positives are the training and support are phenomenal. Uh, you typically have a district manager or an ASM or something like that. Uh, my training, my handholding uh, was was really really good. Uh, the other side of it is, is sink or swim. You know, the volume of agents they have, they truly don't care if you make it or not. Because if you don't make it, there's three other people that are going to take your spot and they're going to roll your book and whatever. So, I mean, at at this point, I mean, now, obviously, eight years later, but I mean, my mental toughness is a 10. I mean, I am absolutely unflappable because I have gone through the fire and month after month after quarter after quarter, just struggling to survive and...
1: Well, I got to believe too, man, that if you're having to, like, I'm not wired to where I need to report to anybody. You know what I mean? It's it's different if I've got a marketing rep or an underwriting relationship and I'm being held accountable to my, you know, from my carrier partners for results or loss ratio or number of submissions or whatever else, I'm perfectly fine with that. But me having to go in every day and realize that I don't have the ability to be empowered to do what I want to do when I want to do it, that was the worst part about the last agency that I was at. And I think I've done a pretty good job, probably in some cases, too good of a job with my team and letting them just sort of have free reign and do whatever they need to do to get the job done. You know, there's very few rules around what they're expected to do every day, but you know, they're also getting things done. So
2: yeah. Man, I couldn't agree more with that. I was very fortunate at, at the carrier that I represented that my DM was so, so, so strong. I mean, he was a career guy. Uh, he's been in it for a little more than 35 years now. But when I first started, I mean, he was almost 30 years in the game. And his whole management style was very hands-off, very, what do you need? How can I help? And he wasn't going to get in your way. He wasn't going to prop you up. So the real story there, I left for a lot of the same reasons that it sounds like you left your last agency. I was really tired of being boxed in. Um, there was a couple of market segments that I was starting to flourish in. Um, real estate investors is the main one, uh, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about at some point uh, on this episode. But I realized, you know what, I don't need you guys anymore. I, I needed you six years ago. I don't need you anymore. There's nothing more that you guys can teach me. You're inside the box people, and I'm not really wired for that. Uh, so at that point, it became obvious that I needed to leave. Uh, and I, I missed out on a, an incentive trip by a technicality, and I didn't handle it well. I was really immature emotionally about it. we was just like, Well, okay, screw this. That's the last straw. I'm done. I'm out of here. I I was already out of there. I was already heading for the exits, but that really accelerated my pace to to put my agency up for sale and, and go independent. What
1: things did you take from that when you went
2: independent, like things that you learned in your journey there that you were able to apply? You know, I think from a technology perspective, from a client experience perspective, the captive carrier and just in general, they did a really good job of delivering a cohesive experience from start to finish, from the website to the service request to uh, you know getting documents to the mobile app, like everything that carrier did was intentional. You know the technology, it was clunky and it wasn't the most up to date thing, but it worked. And that's I think something a lot of independent agents struggle with. Uh, it's it's an evolution, right? You know the the tech stack from top to bottom from management system to crm to comparative raider to whatever you know whatever you want to bolt on something like a you know a tarmica for instance a, you know an up-and-coming new thing uh, that people are trying to figure out well how do i throw this into my process uh, i'm definitely going to be signing up for for Tarmica because i'm heavy in commercial and so that that widget just fits um but you know for, for instance does your AMS talk to your Rater? Does your CRM talk to your AMS? Like, how are you leveraging the technology to create this seamless user experience? Because I promise you, the 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 State Farms and All States and AmFams and Farmers and Geicos of the world, like they've they're putting millions and millions of dollars into client experience, uh, and that's that's something the independent channel kind of struggles with in a systemic sense. I think.
1: Well, let let me ask you this: If you're looking back at it, like from where you're at now versus where you were do you think that there was a certain uh benefit to the fact you really didn't have a choice as far as your tech stack or what you were going to use i mean i think that a lot of times we get caught in this shiny object syndrome where we're so worried about trying to figure out what's going to be right for our agency and balance the financial pieces of that and everything Some days I wish that I just had something that worked, you know, that I walk in, I don't have to think about it. This is the only option. There's no shiny object syndrome or whatever. I mean, I think that it's got – it's sexy to be able to go out and customize it and make it exactly what you want it to be. But I also think that that's one of the biggest challenges that many of the independents face out there is once there are no rules, (laughs) it's actually more difficult. Listen – I ran in, I was in retail for a long time. I went and started a service company in between two of my retail jobs because I thought I knew better, could make a lot of money. And what ended up happening was I found out I couldn't be the good guy and the bad guy. I had no problem going out and closing business. But when it came time for me to collect the money that was owed to me, I had a hard time doing that. Uh, and as a result, my receivables got out of control and I basically fell flat on my face and I handed the company over to the guy that was my number one uh, you know, ops guy and let him have it and just said, look, I don't want you to pay me for it. You take it, run it. Your number one job is you got to clear up the, the debt and the receivables. But if you can do that, it'll be good. And that company still stands today in Birmingham, Alabama with no issues at all. But I would never have gotten it to where it was. I'd have probably ended up bankrupting my family and you know, been in, in a bad situation. So it was a learning experience for me that was early enough in my adult life where I figured it out pretty quick. I needed some level of structure. And if I was ever going to go down the road again where I was going to call all the shots, I needed to make a bunch of different decisions.
2: Man, I definitely agree with that. The, the I think the big what am I trying to say here? one of the biggest advantages in the in the captive world uh, is they take so many things off of your plate. It allows you to focus on what really matters, you know, prospecting, closing deals, you know, creating the, the warm fuzzies for the client. Uh, you said it a moment ago, and too many people get stuck on details and shiny object syndrome. You know, the one of the hardest transitions for me Uh, was going from being a good insurance agent, being a good salesman, to being a good business owner. And I think those two things are definitely not the same. I I know for me personally, uh, the transition has not been the easiest. You know, it wasn't until uh, this year, almost a year into running the independent uh, agency that I had a great relationship with my CPA and bookkeeper that I knew exactly what my numbers were. Uh, It wasn't until July 1st that we were prioritizing revenue and profit instead of, you know, premium and the number of accounts to a certain extent. You want to talk about like vulnerabilities coming out of the captive world where premium is everything, where account density, where the number of units, uh, the amount of life insurance that you sell, as an aside, I don't do anything other than PNC. We don't do life or disability or supplemental accident or long-term care or financial products. Nothing. Everything I do, 100% of my business is PNC insurance, uh, and I think that is has a big advantage for how we do things uh, because it allows us one to have uh, channel partners that are life-only agents, channel partners that are health-only agents, or these you know uh, AFLAC or whatever the other uh, whatever these other companies are. There's a lot of, of benefit to being able to focus and do a, a small number of things at a really, really high level. You know, obviously everybody expects me to do personal insurance. We call it private client group in my office, and we do not write monoline policies. If someone calls and says, Hey, can I get a quote for my auto insurance? My answer is no. It's it's a matter of, hey, let's have a conversation. Because you know, that's that's not what we do. We're not the auto insurance shop. Uh, you know, it, Having that foresight on the front end to go, who are we going to be? And what are we going to focus our effort on? Because in the captive world, everybody's trying to be everything. Nobody turns away any prospect. They quote every prospect because they don't know any better. Uh, I think that's probably the beautiful thing. One of the, gosh, so many beautiful things about being an IA, you don't have to do anything. You can do whatever you want. If somebody tries to tell you to sell life insurance, you can tell them to shove it. And you don't have to sell anything you don't want to sell. There, there are no DMs. There are no, you know, state executives breathing down your neck. It's man, you're gonna get me on a soapbox now, but I mean the independent world is beautiful. For anybody who's been captive and goes independent, man, it's a one-way door. No doubt.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, man, it's um <laughs> it's interesting because that's one of the reasons why we do business with Highland Capital, for example, and we recommend them to anybody that's out there doing PNC that doesn't want to get distracted by doing life or any of the other stuff. You know, it's easy to go in and have the conversation about a buy sell agreement and why that's important for our clients or our prospects. But for me to go through the process of dealing with life insurance applications and all of that stuff absolute nightmare. So I know I like to be able to have the conversation hand it off to them and know that I'm gonna get mailbox money you know every month when those checks come in but not in, not even just that knowing that a firm that does nothing but life and disability and that's what they're experts at and even more specifically in integrating with PNC agencies, that's a no-brainer for me.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, it, it, if I was going to give the the average listener one piece of advice, I would just encourage uh, encourage you to figure out what you want to have your your focus be. Who do you want to be? It, you can't be everything to everybody. So if you're going to be great at anything, you have to stop doing some things. You know, it's the ability to focus. And I know, um, gosh, I'm going to butcher her last name. Um, not Molay Millet or Mollet or Mullet or anything. Uh, our um, Oregon. what's I'm. Gosh, I'm blanking on her first name right now. Jennifer Clages. No. Um. Haggerty girl. What's her first oh, name?
1: Aurora Mollet.
2: Aurora. God bless Aurora. I'm so sorry. I'm. I'm just totally blanking your name. Like she is the queen of carving out a niche. She's making it up based with the the Haggerty girl and the stuff she's done with Fireline. I mean, absolute textbook, something along those lines, because there's a thousand different niches. I mean, you could be the specialist for anything from here to Timbuktu, but you got to be some kind of a specialist, I think. Um, if, if you're the agent who's you know trying to do five different things, you're not going to be truly excellent at any of them.
1: No, I agree. I mean, that's why we don't do benefits either, right? We've got a, a joint venture established with a benefits only shop that also does retirement planning and it makes it very, very easy. Um, and it's a formal financial relationship as opposed to just being a channel partnership. I don't want to lose out on that opportunity. But again, agents have a way to overcomplicate things. And this one's not overly complicated at all. You know, we if we refer benefits to this agency, then or they refer PNC to us, whoever the servicing agency is automatically keeps 50% of the revenue. The other 50% goes into a jointly held checking account. And at the end of the month, we split the balance 50-50. It's that simple. But it's a, it's a way for us to derive revenue from our relationships and also protect them, because I don't want to go refer business to a benefits agent, even if they're a great benefits agent, if they're working at a multi lines agency, because at some point they're going to have pressure to bring the other lines in, and that doesn't make sense to me. So we've yeah. removed the we've removed that as a possibility.
2: No, I definitely agree, man. No doubt.
1: Yeah, so when you were you, you made the jump, you opened the doors day one. You know, you walk in, and now all of a sudden, like, when did the oh crap moment hit you when you realized, okay, now I have to start bringing in revenue because I can tell you, for me, it was about five minutes after I filed my LLC with the state of Florida.
2: Yeah, you know, I I was fortunate enough to be able to sell the previous agency, so I had an infusion of capital at the beginning, so it wasn't minute one. That I felt the absolute crunch, but it was definitely within the first couple of months. When I looked at my startup cost, you know, you pay deposits on offices, you buy furniture, you buy technology, and man, I spent forty grand before I even opened my doors, and that was just on deposits. I didn't have a build out, so I, I really can't say that forty went to you know building out to a white box for my office. It was entirely furniture and technology and deposits, and you know that's I only had you know about 250 to start with, uh, for launching the new thing. But yeah, there was absolutely that moment. Uh, it was probably, probably two months in when I was in the middle of that shiny object syndrome, I had already hired, I was on active campaign at that point for my CRM, I had hired a consultant. They'd helped me build it out. I was having some problems. It wasn't working as seamlessly as it should have. I was completely underwater with a pipeline and I didn't have a process. I didn't have a, a well-documented, this is how we do business from the initial conversation through you know, post-binding obligations. I, I didn't have it written down like I do now. And man, it was a hot mess. It was like, oh, you want some insurance? Great. La, 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 la. Okay, great. You're done. Next, who wants some insurance? And we had success, a, a lot of success, um, but it was myself and a full-time CSR, and that was it at that time. We we were working 60 hours a week, hair on fire for the first eight months. Then we hired a second CSR and then a producer. And then, you know, six months later into this year, we brought on a third uh, young lady to be our admin. So right now it's five people total. But in nine months, uh, eight months actually, because we didn't really start writing until April 1st of 19, you know, we put a million and fifty thousand in premium on the books in the first eight months of one person and one CSR, basically. So I mean, it was the most insane eight months of my life, man. Uh, I didn't have time to be worried about making money because everything was happening so fast. And, oh, by the way, my wife and I had a baby girl August 1st of last year because, you know, that doesn't complicate anything, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, man. I I think it's funny. I don't know that I'll ever open another office because right now I'm two for two and getting free furniture. <laughs> Every, in both offices, I negotiated in that I just got the furniture for free if I was going to sign the lease. The one in our main location in Valrico, the guy that was the leasing agent, like three or four different times kept bringing up the furniture and bringing up the furniture, wanting to sell it. And he kept coming down further and further. And I said, look, I'm going to make this real simple for you if you mention the furniture to me one more time, I am not going to lease this property and I'm not going to go look at anything else that you show me. I don't need the furniture. And he said, well, we need to figure out a problem. You know, he goes, we need to figure out a solution to this problem. I said, I have the solution. Call the lady that was here before and tell her she has two options. Either the furniture stays here or I have it removed and she pays for it. Which one does she want it to be? Because I'm not paying for furniture that I didn't pick out and I don't want. Now, listen, truthfully, I didn't care. I don't care what it looks like. I don't, nobody comes into our office for anything as far as doing business goes, but I was successful in that negotiation. And then when we opened up loots. We got that furniture for free, too, because the people had, had moved out. Dude, and thank they wanted- God those other chairs are gone. The Flux capacitor chairs. <laughs> were those inherited? Those or- were not inherited. That was okay. a poor decision on yeah. my part. Well, that's on you. Those things were horrendous. Yeah, they were. We had these chairs where you would be sitting at a 45-degree angle to either the left or the right because they just were not made well. But whatever. It doesn't matter. It was always fun. <laughs> It was always good when the carrier people came over that we would stick <laughs> them. Yeah, the worst one just, just the other. <laughs> yeah, uh, but whatever. Well, listen, man, you're doing you're doing good stuff now. I mean, obviously, you've defined what your what your goals are in terms of types of business you're going after. I agree with you completely about not just offering mono line. We don't really do that on commercial. I mean, we'll do it as an accommodation, but with the understanding we'll be taking the other lines as they come up for renewal, if there's off dates or whatever. And if we can take a midterm BOR, then obviously we'll do that. But I think it makes sense because otherwise, you know, I have to believe the stickiness if nothing else. I mean, obviously the revenue per account is a huge motivator to write, more than one line, but just also, if you write more than one line for somebody, I got to believe it's stickier. You would know better than, better than I would about that, James, just because of your time, you know, in, in that sector of what you do versus, versus mine. Personal lines is new to us.
2: Well, and that's, you know, I got to say, part of what we do, I learned from you. Cause I mean, I started following your content about a year ago. Uh, I wasn't able to do anything with it a year ago because it was like, you know, a toddler looking at some calculus and the toddler's just like, where's my snack? Uh, so it, it wasn't something I could act on. But your whole thing of, look, you either have me for everything or you have me for nothing. Do you want to do business or not? You know, that approach has worked wonderfully for us because... I mean, that's kind of the whole reason we created what we call the private client group, like borrowing from large banks and whatnot that have that, you know, the the something special over here for only certain people qualify. And we, we use that language and tell people flat out, look this group we have a lot of resources we put into it we have the client self-service portal which they don't know that i get that from now sir my ams vendor and now starts does that spectacularly i know a lot of folks have you know you have hubspot and other folks you know salesforce whatever there's a lot of different ways to get a, a, a client self-service portal but a lot of agents don't have that and to the client that's still pretty flashy. Like they love being able to log on and all of their documents from all of their carriers are sitting right there, certificate request, whatever, you know, see what invoices you've paid, like a whole bunch of stuff is in that portal. So in order for us to, you know, manage that, we have certain expectations, Mr. Prospect. And sorry, you know, if you want a monoline policy, well, you don't qualify for private client group. I'd be happy to refer you to my colleague down the street who has no standards. They'll write anything. Do you have a pulse? Great. I'll write you. Um, That's really not what we want to be. And the side effect of that is you level up your prospect because all the risk graph is going to go to the quote factory. And, um, yeah,
1: I, I agree with that. I mean, it's what I tell people all the time, right? When we when somebody comes into killing commercial, one of the very first things that w- exercises we run them through is they have to identify who their ideal prospect or prospects. Are going to be. And I, I tell them, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Determine that you, you know, three to five segments of the marketplace that you're going to go after and be really, really good at going after those three to five segments of the marketplace. Yep. Otherwise, you're going to fall in the same trap everybody else does and be average. You're going to be okay at a bunch of things. I don't want people who are okay at a bunch of things. I want people who are really good at what they're going after and they stay in their lane and that's all they go after. At the agency principal, I can then look at what each one of my producers is focusing on and making sure that we're getting, you know, spread of risk based on not having too much overlap there. So I think that... um there's a lot to be said for knowing what you're good at, knowing what you can produce critical mass in, but not even just that, that it's profitable business. I mean, I could go out and write a boatload of 10, 20, 10 auto right now. What's that loss ratio look like at the end of the year? What do the cancellations look like? And, and I'm not throwing off on people who have non standard agencies for auto because some of the richest people I know in the insurance industry run non-standard. But it's not necessarily because they're the greatest clients with the longest retention and the least amount of turnover. It's because they can charge broker fees in addition to the premium. And so they're clocking money two, two different ways on every single account. You know what? If that's what you want to do, great. Be the best at that. That's not what I'm wired for. It's not what I want to do. I want to go after middle market accounts, period. And so I'm going to stay in that lane. And that has served me well. That's the one thing that I can say, even though there was pressure, okay, in terms of me producing. But I my biggest pressure was self-induced when I started my agency. Shock, right? I, I mean, I'm always going to be my biggest critic, period. Yep. Except for Kyle. Kyle's a pretty big critic of me <laughs> <people. But, laughs> But I mean, in, in all seriousness, and you know, I I don't talk about that transition a lot, but I was ready to leave the industry altogether. Like I was done. I was done with insurance. I was so burnt out of not being able to make a decision, not being able to pull the trigger on something that I wanted to do. The straw that broke the camel's back for me is when I had to go to another partner. I was partner status in this agency. I had to go and get approval to spend $50 a month on Zoho. That I I had to have somebody else tell me I was allowed to do that. And that's when I realized this isn't going to work for me. I can't handle it. And so I told my wife, I'm like, I'm out. I had offers from Amazon, Disney and Publix to go be uh, in marketing with them at a very high level. And it would have been good money and it would have been solid. And my wife looked at me and she very clearly said, why in the world would you ever do that? You're an idiot you're good at this. This is what you like to do. You've always said, these are the things that you would do if you had your own shop, go open up your own agency and do them and you will be wildly successful. You have no concerns whatsoever for me. Now it doesn't hurt me any that my wife makes over six, you know, she's in six figures of earnings. So from a financial perspective, that wasn't like I was throwing everything in, into the ring, but at the same time as a man, our ego is we want to take care of our family. We want to be the provider. We want to make sure that we are the ones who are meeting the needs financially and everything else for our wives and our kids. And that was a huge problem for me that here I go starting over from scratch. When she said, go do it. I've got your back. I'm going to be more than angry with you if you don't go do this. Then, it, all bets were off at that point. I was off to the races. I never had a concern that I would be able to go out and produce in the middle market. I'd already been doing it for over 10 years. My, my game has not changed any since, you know, really other than just adapting and moving to a different angle here or there, hasn't changed any in the last 15 to 20 years. But when you start over and you have zero, it's a different, it's a completely different animal. I didn't have the pressure there. I had the pressure on what, I was going to be able to do in the position that I was going to put my family in. And the way I looked at it was I didn't put myself in this position. My other agency did. And as a result, now I'm leaving, I'm going to do my own thing. And guess what? For the last four years I've done everything that I always wanted to do. And guess what? It's worked out pretty well.
2: Yeah, man. That's, that is what we all shoot for, isn't it? You know, the, um, the the model the path that you have trod I think is what a lot of us are going after. It's certainly what I'm going after. Uh, just figuring out putting the pieces in place to scale. You now getting the technology where it needs to be, building out those core processes. You know, documenting um, the the book Traction. Uh, I, th- I think it's re- it's really popular. A lot of people have read it. Um, we followed the EOS to a T in my office. Um, five of the six components are relevant right now. Uh, but that whole VTO vision traction organizer thing and like documenting core processes, uh, having the right people in the right seats, like basically everything in traction I'm living, breathing, example of. Um, I don't really know any other way. Uh, I don't have any kind of business background, you know I uh, my undergrad in college uh, was kinesiology and biology double major. I was going to be a doctor. so I literally have no business classes of any kind. No, no accounting, no management, no finance, no marketing, literally zero classes like that. So, I mean, everything I have is, you know, School of Hard Knocks. It's all self-taught, watching YouTube videos and reading books and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's it's really cool when you see someone, you know, just blow up like you have. I mean, three and a half million dollars in revenue in four years, that is it's absolutely insane, man. I'd be lying if I said that wasn't, just almost borderline unbelievable for someone like me 20 months into this game.
1: Yeah. But you know what the thing is, it's a matter of focus, knowing your lane and sticking in it. Right. So, so many times we get this just completely disillusioned about, well, you know, we, this one came in and it's a $2,500 cleaning lady, or this one came in and it's a, you know, the new one is the people who are purifying environments for COVID, whether it be restaurants or hospitals or whatever else. No, you know you have to be able to say no. And I think that's where people need to learn to draw the line. They're so worried about production. They've had so much pressure to produce that they feel like they have to write every single thing that comes in the door. I'll never forget it. I have a producer that's not with me anymore that came in and, and spent, I can't even tell you how much time on a freaking chiropractor's office that was $735 in workers comp premium and the joker goes and presents the, presents it, and the guy comes back and says, I, don't, I, don't, I have to check and see if I've got other options. Well, A, number one, why didn't you bother to tell him it's state-administered pricing in Florida, so it's going to be the same everywhere, but that's the kind of garbage I'm talking about. Seventy-some dollars in agency <laughs> revenue on an account is not going to cut it. And so when I, I lost it in sales meeting one day, I'm like, dude, you don't understand what you're doing. This is not profitable business for me. He goes, well, what if I go out and get 100 of them? This is the gatekeeper. This guy will get me into every other chiropractor, blah, 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 blah. I said, great. You're, what you've basically done then is you've taken and you've brought me 100 accounts that lose money. You've not made the problem better. You've made the problem worse. You've exacerbated it because you're continuing to go after unprofitable business. Yep. There's a reason why we want to be in the middle market and specifically – With the types of accounts in the industry segments that we're going after, because they are by far the most profitable for us. And number two, they're the easiest for us to project and be able to get information on. There is a reason why my ideal prospect is Residential service contractors, plumbers, HVAC electricians that have 25 or more vehicles in their fleet, 40 or more employees, 5 million a year or more in sales, and a 1.0 or higher experience mod. There's a reason for that. Number one, there's enough meat there that I can afford to service that account and provide them with a learning management system like ThinkHR that's going to be able to take their employees and enroll them in digital training courses where they can go in and correct the driving issues or whatever else that's going on. But more importantly, I know that if they're doing business to consumer stuff, that nobody's looking after them. There's a much higher likelihood that the mod is going to be a one or higher if they're not doing new construction in in an actual trade contractor because there's not a GC that's holding them accountable for that mod being 1.0 or lower. So we know that if we call or we pull 100 mods from plumbers, HVACs, or electricians, we're going to have at least 40 of those that are above 1.0. That's a pretty good hit rate because if you have a mod that's 1.0 or higher, our ability to close that business is huge. So it's funny because when I talk about this with other agency owners, like, oh, my gosh, man, 100 mods, You're, you're spending $600 a month pulling 100 mods. Well, yeah. Brainiac, I'm not just like randomly closing my eyes and going in and pulling whatever pops up. We have a very focused approach and we know exactly what we're going after. And we know that of the stuff we're pulling, it's going to be a minimum of $25,000 in account revenue. So let me help you with the math. If I'm pulling for if 40 accounts have 25,000 or more in revenue and mods of 1.0 or higher, that one subset of experience mods that I paid $600 to pull gives me a million dollars in opportunity from a revenue standpoint to go after and close it. I will pay $600 for a million dollars of opportunity. Any day of the week, and I don't care who you are, nobody is going to convince me that that's a bad idea because what I know is even if I can only get 50% of those people to meet with me, I've only got $500,000 in revenue opportunity. But if they meet with me, we close 99% of those accounts. So for me to spend $600 to get $500,000 in revenue, I'd love for somebody to come in and give me a valid argument as to why I shouldn't do that.
2: Yeah, man. I mean that's
1: 100%, right? But that's an example, right? So when people say, "Oh, how do you scale so fast? Or I can't believe you did it." That's why. You know, that's why right there. I mean, if that's just 100 mod polls, we we budget for $1,000 a month in mod polls. I don't even think we've hit 1,000 in probably the last year. You know, if we if we spend 500 bucks a month right now because we don't we don't have the capacity to do to do it. You know, and, and that's a good problem to have and a bad problem to have. But we're at a point right now in our ju- in our journey where we're looking at controlled growth as opposed to just really hammering down revenue because it's not a secret. I don't like the operations side of the agency world. I don't want to have to be responsible for all that. And I've never been a CSR, so I'm the last person in the world that should be training that. So we're stepping back and looking at operations and how we can do things more efficiently because we got the sales part figured out.
2: Yeah, no doubt.
1: So no. talk a little bit about your niche stuff that you're doing. I mean, obviously, real estate investors is one of them. You've got the private client group thing that you've, you're have uh, you kicking off. Uh, and I know there's some other stuff that you're doing I don't remember off the top of my head. So talk about that a little bit and sort of what your experience has been like there.
2: You know, I I really tried to figure out the intersection of what I enjoy talking about and where the premium is. Um, so much like you described, uh, your your target of HVAC higher than five million revenue, higher than uh, twenty five uh, vehicles in the fleet, et cetera. Um, I realized the intersection for me is: Do you own a building? Okay. Do you have a fleet of vehicles? For me, it's the target is ten or more. I'm I'm not quite to twenty five. Sorry, maybe someday. Um, but then, do you have? In-house employees, not you know, independent contractors, because unfortunately, in Texas, uh, work comp is voluntary, which is just the strangest thing ever. It's the only state in the entire country that's completely voluntary. New New Jersey says they're voluntary, but they're really not, because there's all kinds of hoops you got to jump through. Um, So, work comp is a different game here. Um, I realized that there was. Uh, a large population of prospects that were underserved, uh, that is real estate investors that either have a rental portfolio or they are buying commercial property or apartment buildings. Um, those those three uh, subsectors of prospects... It's kind of the donut hole, you know? The, the main street agent, your you know captive agent down the street, has no capacity, no understanding whatsoever of how to write an apartment complex correctly. certainly no idea how to prospect and find those people and deliver a compelling uh, value offering. The, the premium is there, and typically it's really sticky. The great thing about real estate investors, and this is the same for anybody. I mean doctors talk to each other architects talk to each other, whatever. If you're sticking to a vertical, they all talk to each other, bro. They go to networking stuff. They go to trade associations, all those things. If you're focusing a lot of energy on one particular sector, you're going to get a bunch of referrals. And that is exactly what has happened uh, for us with these larger real estate investors. We get a bunch of onesie-twosie folks that find us on Facebook or so-and-so, cousin, whatever, uh, says, hey, talk to these guys, they're good. Uh, but the prospecting, the folks that I'm messaging on Facebook and LinkedIn, uh, the folks that I'm sending care packages to as a, hey, check me out, they are apartment building owners, commercial property, uh, LRO type stuff is an absolute loss leader. I mean, Chubb, for instance, I had my my uh, my sales rep for Chubb say, dude, everything you have with us this quarter is LRO. Can I get something else? I'm like, hey you're freaking discounted beyond everybody else right now why would i not put lro with you it's whatever i get from the 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 market you know the field i got to you know play the cards i'm dealt you know if i if i collect five opportunities for lro don't complain if i quote five with you like i mean that's just as a good example you know if it's a mixed use commercial space and the you know the tenant class codes are acceptable man that's such a slam dunk I mean, it takes me thirty minutes. It's an admitted market, no accord forms. I mean, that is that is an absolute sweet spot of a client. If you know, if you own commercial property, I definitely want to talk to you because I I can do it in my sleep. You know, the agent down the street goes, "Oh, this is a great opportunity." I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, hey James, can you help me write this? I was like, all right, fine. You know, generalist over there doesn't know what they're doing. They don't even know what LRO is. They're going to Google it because they don't know what it stands for. Uh, but Just as an example of a lot of success in a very small space, I'm not interested in real estate investors in a general sense um, because obviously a lot of folks, I mean hundreds of thousands of people across the country would consider themselves real estate investors. We're really looking for someone specific. Do you own 20 or more properties? Do you own a multifamily or do you own commercial property? If it's less than that, I have two people in the office that will turn out a quote in about 10 minutes. And our platform is QuoteBind Issue online. Everything is super easy for the client. Um, We've worked on building these master programs with various Lloyd's cover holders and some domestic markets, but it's a lot of Lloyd's programs. Uh, And thankfully, these programs are accessible if you know where to look for them. Um, you and I are our, our mutual friend, Justin Sloan, connected me with one we've had a lot of success with, and we found a couple of others that are really good for the folks that we're meeting. But I mean at this point, we're riding north of 100 properties a month every month, and we're almost at a billion dollars in insured value uh, for our investment properties. And I'd be lying if I said that wasn't pretty cool, you know, for somebody who's only been doing this for a couple of years now, you know, we I, I personally insure more than 3,000 investment properties in 25 states. And it's, I mean, it's fun. It, it, being able to have that much focus in one very specific area, it, yeah, it feels good. Because, I mean, there's a lot of value in being, a you know, just an entrepreneur. But when you can say you're a gi- legitimate specialist in one thing, the market responds well to that.
1: Yeah, I've noticed too, just from watching the different activity that you have on social. that you do a lot with the chamber and in your community and the business associations and stuff there. I have to believe that that's paying you back some kind of dividends too. And I mean, that's something that we don't do uh, as much as maybe we should have, uh, just because we're not as heavy on the personal line side. Like it's not I just I've never found value there, but I we do things in the community, just not with the formal business associations and stuff. Talk a little bit about that and how you've plugged yourself in, because I know that I mean if if a day goes by that you haven't posted something about a business in McKinney, then it's not an official day.
2: Yeah, you know it's it's kind of funny you mention that because I'm stuck in this weird spot, and anybody who operates outside of one market knows exactly what I mean. Because if you go on my website. Riskwell.com, you won't find any reference to McKinney anywhere. So, for SEO purposes, it's a real challenge because I'm intentionally not pigeonholed myself as a McKinney, Texas guy because we have so much outside of our market. It's ridiculous. I mean, maybe 30% of our total market for everything we do is local, everything else is outside of the immediate area. Um, so, The stuff that I do on social media really is that local focus because my website, stuff on Google, the YouTube that I put out, um, I don't do anything uh, that is locally focused. So our chamber here in McKinney, Texas is extremely strong. It's a vibrant chamber. There's a lot of activity. They have almost 1,500 members. Um, The Google reviews locally has been really strong for us. Uh, Cause other than this state farm guy down the street who is paying people to leave reviews um, and we passed him a couple of weeks ago, we have like 200 and something Google reviews, but I, I can't tell you how much traffic we get just from random people saying, Hey, I found you on Google. You got a lot of reviews over there. You guys must be doing something right. Um, that Facebook thing, there's a couple of groups that are very local. Almost hyper local. That's really the only local stuff that I do. Because if you're active in multiple markets, especially if you're active in multiple states, man, it is really hard to have your cake and eat it too. Because Google penalizes you if you are not using those keywords and like targeting specific markets with your content.
1: Let me ask you this so, reviews is obviously a huge thing, it's not as big of a deal. In our agency as it sits today, just because so much of what we do is referral based, anyhow. And I don't know too many people that are CFOs of companies that are going to pay half a million dollars in premium that are going to go to Google looking for the agent. It's just that's not where we're at in the personal lines world. Good absolutely. Point. Yeah, absolutely. In the personal lines world, you know, that's reviews are king and it probably small business to a certain degree too. What are you doing to do you have a an internal process that you're using? Are you using a third party application to get Google reviews and net promoter scores and all of that? What what's that look like?
2: A lot of it is not sexy. And I'm sorry if you're listening to this, it's just good old fashioned asking people. Uh, We use Better Agency as our CRM. Uh, We automate the ask. If if someone comes into our office, they're going to get asked to leave a review probably five times in the first 30 days, two by text message and two or three by email. And then after every single service request, we have an automated ask at the close of a service request. After they've designated, yes, that went well, I'm happy, then it triggers a, uh, uh, an ask again after the service request of, Hey, um, this is, and I, I should clarify, it's not only if the, the service request automation isn't at the level yet where they can, you know, field one way or the other. Um, uh, but we have it set up within better agency that at the close of a service request, they're going to get a text message inviting them to leave a review. And then my team, uh, this is really the one thing that has been, uh, the best for us, I told them, if you get a review that mentions you by name, I will hand you a $10 bill. Every time, every review that mentions you by name, you get a $10 bill from me. And I mean, I went from 140 reviews to 205 reviews in about three months. And there's,
1: That's solid. That's solid.
2: I mean, two hundred and five is not nearly as many as a lot of folks in IAOA that really pound it. Uh, that are a lot bigger agency than I am. My my whole agency is only we'll cross three hundred thousand in revenue this year. We're on, on on if we do what we're supposed to do, it'll be about five fifty next year. So we're still a very small fish to be realistic, um but we get after it with the ask. And when the you know the attractive young lady with a sweet voice says, Hey, would you do me a favor? Can you leave me a review? My boss has to give me 10 bucks. If you leave me a review, that'd be great, please. And it's not just personal lines. A lot of this is our investor clients. Now these folks that are flipping two, three, four, five houses a month. Now that's, that that adds up, you know, it's not sexy. You're not going to make a, you know, thousand dollars each one, but you're going to make 150. And when that one client is is buying two, three, four, five properties every month, and that stuff adds up pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why you know Florida wedding insurance has been so good for us is we've had the we have the ability to uh, streamline that whole process. It's all quote bind issue. It's a hundred percent based off of um, going to a landing page from a display ad and all of those things, and it's a huge. Uh, funnel for personal lines. But it's crazy because a lot of people say, well, what do you mean Florida wedding insurance? Why are you screwing around with wedding insurance? It's only paying you $50 a policy when you sell it. Well, it's real simple because it pays me $50 a policy and I don't have to do anything. you know. I, and what's crazy is when you start backing into the numbers, right? So we, we, we I started looking at it in pre-COVID, we were popping anywhere between 5 and 10 of those a day. Well, if you just use 6 as the number, that's $300 a day in revenue 7 days a week. That's over $100,000 a year in revenue just from selling wedding cancellation policies. I don't know very many people in the world that would say I don't want to have a job that pays me over $100,000 a year and I don't have to do anything for it. Like yeah, who doesn't definitely. want that? But more importantly, what happens is when that when those people and, and so let me just say, that wasn't the reason why we developed floridaweddinginsurance.com. We developed floridaweddinginsurance.com because we understood that many of our carriers on the personal line side want those younger couples that are getting married, looking to buy the house. They both have decent jobs, couple of cars, need an umbrella, whatever else. So now you go there, you buy that policy, you're immediately taken to a thank you page with a video from me saying, hey, welcome to the family. Really appreciate you using us to ensure your big day. I wanted to make sure you understand that we are a full-service insurance and risk management firm, and we can handle anything and everything you're going to encounter. In fact, we are so proactive in our approach, we are going to remind you of things you need to be thinking about between now and your big day. And the date of the wedding is entered into HubSpot. And it goes into an automation sequence that along the lines, hey, now's probably a good time to be thinking about your homeowners or your renters or whatever else. Or now's a time for you to think about updating your auto or is the jewelry insured properly? Have you contemplated life and disability and all of these things? And we roll them into a drip sequence ending with the big days a week away. We are so humbled that you chose us to represent you in ensuring that nothing can go wrong, at least nothing that you won't be compensated for. Thank you so much. And if we can be of assistance going forward, please feel free to reach out. It's a huge funnel. So for all of you haters out there that want to make fun of me for having $50 wedding policies you know, sold on my site, here's a fun fact of mathematics for you. As long as I'm spending less money on my ad spend than I'm bringing in in revenue On wedding policies, you're out there paying to generate personal lines leads while I'm sitting here getting paid to generate personal lines leads. Who's the dummy now? (laughs) It's math, bro. Owned by the calculator, fool. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Put that in your pipe and smoke it.
2: Oh, man. You think he's a little hot, Kyle? Holy cow, man!
1: Yeah, I like I get amped up on stuff like that, man, because that's one of the best things that I've ever done in my career, in my opinion.
2: The crazy thing is, you just tapped in on something that I have been begging these two developers for, these two uh, partners. We write a lot of policies for on the real estate side because my process is very web form heavy. I'm very, uh, you know, Zapier and Webhook. Heavy as far as pushing data around, and the holy grail for me is figuring out, you know, how to get my web form data pushed into their comparative rater on their side using a webhook or something like that. Because if we could do that, then I would have a true quote bind issue for real estate investors, where I don't even have to touch it. They literally plug in the data and the the. The system runs on the provider side and they're already set up to automatically email the the insured. So, I mean, for me, quote bind issue for the small stuff that isn't necessarily complicated Now, you and I both know that doesn't work for a lot of businesses, but for the really low hanging fruit where there's only a couple of variables, man, like that's some cool stuff right there.
1: Well, I'll give you an example. Hiscox is a great example. They're going out there. They write a policy that, you know, in many cases has holes in it. I'm not going to sit here and debate coverage forms. It is what it is. And it serves a, I guess, meets some level of a need in the marketplace. But I sit back and look at it. And I'm like, these people are all with Hiscox. And I don't get it. Why? You know, this doesn't make any sense. I could offer them something much better. Well, Rather than me going out and trying to convince the Hiscox client that what their product is doesn't you know doesn't make sense and trying to get them to spend more money to go to an auto owners or somebody like that that I would put them with, I just said, you know what, screw it. That's a certain sub- subset of the client base out there that I am not going to be able to win with if I try and make the argument to charge them more money because it's a 100% transactional purchase, period. So we have quote mind issue with Hiscox. At this point, almost all of our small business, if we get web leads or whatever else, we're redirecting them to our portal where they can quote mind issue and it's mailbox money for me. My thought process is if somebody's getting money for it, it might as well be me. I don't want to spend any time on it, but if I have this tool over here that I can have them go through and enter their information and get educated on what they're getting and I don't have to do anything but control web traffic, I'll do that all day long.
2: Yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm going to need to contact you later and get some 411 on that because we're going to put it on. I mean, I spent or not, I personally, a member of my team spent probably 35 minutes with somebody uh, just yesterday on a complete waste of time in my mind. But to the prospect, it's not. I mean, I'm sitting there going, I don't care about your stupid salon. That's going to be like $110 in revenue for me. Go away. Like, I'm annoyed that you even called and asked me about this and uh, how knowing that there is a platform where you can get access to quote by an issue. Well, there you go. We're not even going to talk to the super small Bob.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, for us, we can now use that as a funnel to you move leads into personal lines or whatever else. But I mean, we've got Florida, veterinary insurance.com Florida, childcare insurance.com Florida, martial arts insurance.com floridafitnessinsurance.com. I can go on and down the list and we have all of these domains. We have one landing page that we built inside of our Advisor Evolved website and we can just recreate that template over and over again, populate it with the information pertinent to that particular line of business, set up ad campaigns, drive traffic to it and it's all quote mind issue stuff that we're making money on by not doing anything. So I don't want people thinking, you know, you listen to this podcast to say you can't be a one trick pony. Guess what? I'm not a one trick pony in the middle market either. I mean, I've got the agency diversified across a bunch of different things at this point. And I think that that's where the future is at, is headed right now. So we can either choose to engage in that behavior and have a solution that we can benefit from, or we can just sit back and pretend like it's not happening and go extinct. I think we also need com. <laughs> yeah, for skunk ape wranglers, I'd be all over that. James, real quick, we're coming up on an hour. I want you to talk a little bit about your YouTube channel. I saw you got your 300th subscriber today. So congratulations on that. Yeah man, but you put out a variety of content, and I know that you've got uh, you've got a following that uh, is is watching the stuff you put up. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the kind of stuff you're putting up there and in the name of the channel, so that they can go give you a uh, like and subscribe.
2: Sure, thanks for that, man. Shameless plug time. You know, I I had this thing for 2020 that I wanted to get more into creating video content, and I watch a lot of YouTube stuff myself. I I enjoy that platform. There's so much good information out there. Um, I inspiration for the risk. Well, YouTube channel is creating content that I would want to watch as a business owner, as a a risk management professional, as someone, uh, who sells stuff for a living. Uh, the content that I create is specifically designed for the intersection of what's going to be interesting to my target prospect, but also interesting to my colleagues in the insurance and risk management industries. And that's kind of where we go from something as simple as, you know, Five ways you're paying too much for general liability insurance. That's one of the videos I'm recording. You know, this next week. To hey, here's our sales process. Here's here's the things that annoy me the most about my clients, and just some like vlog type stuff, but really a lot of intentional content that should be useful to a, a pretty wide variety of people. So you can hit me up on YouTube. Uh, it's it's simply to search Risk Well for the channel. Um, we've got our, our custom uh, URL a while ago, so we're pretty easy to find on there. Obviously, um, the, the notes uh, from this podcast, hopefully I can get David or whomever to, to put a link uh, to the channel in the, the notes for this episode, make it easy to find. But th- that's really it. Um, I'd love to connect with you uh, on there if there's something you want me to talk about, if there's a question you want answered. I get messaged two or three times every single day by insurance people saying, hey, I got a question about such and such. That's exactly the sort of stuff uh, that I would love to do YouTube content for. So uh, thanks for the opportunity for a completely shameless plug there.
1: Absolutely, man. I am going to go ahead and wrap up, but I want to ask you one more question. What's the biggest surprise that you have encountered since you left the captive world and got into the independent channel? And we'll end with that. The biggest surprise. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that's, that's come to surprise you. You know,
2: I would say that whatever you're doing, whatever you present yourself as there is room in the market for that, that whatever you put out into the ether, so to speak, uh, there is a prospect for that. Uh, there's, I, I definitely subscribe to an abundance mindset. I think there's more than enough business for everybody who is hustling and getting after it. Uh, whatever you want from the marketplace, go out and grab it. Because I thought for years that there was a formula, that you had to follow the certain formula to have success in insurance. And that might be true in the small market, personal lines, captive world. But for those of us that are trying to build something special in the independent world, You can make it whatever you want it to be. There are absolutely no rules. Whatever you put out is what you're going to attract. Uh, And I think I didn't know that 20 months ago, but I definitely know that now. So I would say to anybody listening to this, be who you are, be who you want to be, build the agency you want to have, and, and the market will respond.
1: Absolutely. Well, listen, man, thanks for taking time out of your day. I appreciate uh, you spending some time with us. I think everybody's going to get a lot out of this session, a lot of good stuff that was covered. And uh, just again, we really appreciate it. People, reach out to James. He's an open connector. Make sure you check out the YouTube channel. We'll talk soon.
0: You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast.